Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am thrilled to say that this episode was made possible by the wonderful people at Hatch Outdoors. There's a reason you've been seeing Hatch on all the guideboats these days. And the reason is that quality gear is invaluable when it comes to landing that fish of a lifetime. I've been using Hatch Reels since their first year of business, and I can honestly say that when it comes to confidence in my equipment, Hatch has never let me down. Every component of a Hatch Reel is proudly made in the USA, but it's their prompt customer service that really shines through. Hatch supports the industry, the economy, and the environment. Please share the support and make your next reel a Hatch. I promise you won't regret it. Amy Hazel is a woman you won't forget. Guide, instructor, fly shop owner, and just an all-round force to be reckoned with. She's the sort of woman who works hard and fishes even harder. Amy is a committed business owner, a woman who fights for her beliefs, and a comedian in her own right. Need I say more? I've loved this woman since the very first day we met seven years ago at a trade show in California. I stayed with Amy and her husband John on the Deschutes River in Maupin, Oregon to hear more about where Amy came from and where she's planning on going. So I grew up in Minnesota. Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah, which is a very northern state. I find myself slipping into the Canadian accent every time I go up to Canada. Because uh, we didn't say A, but, you know, I can talk like a Minnesotan (laughs) if I need to now. No, but I grew up there and... Just had a huge love for fishing. What did you fish for in Minnesota? Uh, we fished for crappie, bluegill, northern pike, walleye, um, just all the, you know, kind of like the 
lake fish, and we had a cabin on a lake and in northern Minnesota, and I used, and we also would go to the Boundary Waters on the border of Canada. Right. So we'd go on all our camping trips up there, and uh, my dad was actually a um, he he was not a guide, but he called himself Ron the Guide, and he put together a big father-son fly fishing trip every year for all the fathers and sons in the neighborhood. And that was fathers and sons, mind you. Because <laughs> so did all, you have a brother growing up? I had two brothers. So okay, so did he take the boys? He took the boys. And so they all met in our driveway every year. And all my, I was a tomboy, so all my best friends were boys. And yeah. they were all going on the father-son fishing trip to Canada. They okay. would go to Canada every year. And I would stand in the driveway just going... Oh, I hate these guys. <laughs> they, at first, it started off, they go to Lake of the Woods, which is on the border of Canada and Minnesota. Yeah. As the dads all started making more money, I think, they started doing fly-in fishing trips. So now you really hate them. Yeah, I really was so disappointed that I never got to go. Did you ask if you could go? Um, no, because it was a father-son. It was like a set-in-stone thing. My dad would then take, he, we would do a father-daughter trip every year. Okay. Yeah. And so, but it was never like flying in a plane to Canada. <laughs> so, um, so I think that my revenge on on that whole thing was becoming a fishing guide. And now my brothers barely ever fish, and I'm the one that. Well, they fish, but I'm the one that fishes more often. Than I mean, me. it is. It's not more often. I mean, it is All your. The time. It's my my livelihood, my lifestyle. This is what I do. So. And it was funny when I was growing up because they were spoiled. They went to Canada, and they had, like, the greatest fishing ever, and then they would come back and never fish around home. And whereas I was a little kid, I would get on my bike every day in the summer and just pad- pedal off on my banana seat twin <laughs> with, a fly- with not a fly rod, a spinning rod in the back, and I would come back with a northern pike in the basket of my bike, and I'd be, like, riding through the neighborhood really proud that I had, like slayed this big northern pike and <laughs> what did your mother think i mean was she trying to dress you up and i yeah uh, oh i mean always growing up she was always like cleaning you up yeah and so when i was in high school we had a cabin up north and um i would go out in the morning like early i'd get up at the crack of dawn yeah. and i'd go out and fish all morning until about 11 and that's when all the other teenagers would wake up so that picture that you saw of me yeah, well, holding yeah, the fish on the chain. Holding the fish. That was like at about 10 in the morning. And and then I would get home and then I would like get out of all my fishing clothes and like get into my teenage <laughs> clothes and then, you know, take a shower and like act like a teenager for the rest of the day. But like, Did your friends think you were out of your mind? They didn't know. It was kind of secret. Did you, you know? want it to be secret? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just... There was one other guy that was in our little clique of, of teenagers, yeah. and he was out fishing in the morning, too, so I'd put by him in my boat, and he'd see me fishing, and then, and, and I'd see him fishing, and we'd kind of, like, give each other the nod, but, like, when it. we get to the teenage, you know, when we're <laughs> water skiing and hanging out... It was not, like, mentioned. No, because it wasn't really cool. It wasn't very cool. Because I used to, I was like, you yeah, I fished in high school, but it was never cool. No. When people asked me what I did, I, you know, I don't yeah. know. I, I never was like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I, go fishing. I fish. Because you just get weird looks. You have to explain, and it's just exhausting. Yeah. So yeah. then what happens? Well, so then I, I didn't start fly fishing. The first time I really, Minnesota was not really a place where people fly fish. Because no. it was all lakes. And, I mean, I guess in the southern region, there's some, there's some, nice chalk streams and stuff but 
um, I first held a fly rod when I was about 16 at a friend's cabin, and his dad had an old cane rod, and he's like, this is a fly rod, you know, and I was like, oh, this is really cool, you know, and I started casting it, and then I went away to school in Vermont to a college called Middlebury College, and Vermont is a real hotbed for fly fishing, and, mm. and obviously the history, there's the American Fly Fishing Museum and mm-hmm. Orvis, and so that's when I started fly fishing for real, because I went there with my conventional gear, yeah. and I caught my first brook trout on, we were fishing for northern pike in one of the rivers, and I held that trout, like, in the water, in my hands, and looked at it like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Because if you've grown up catching, bluegill are beautiful in their, in their way. I mean, they are gorgeous. But it's not the when classic. You, when you grow up catching, like, northern pike and walleye and perch and stuff, and then you see, like, a beautiful, like, spotted, colorful trout, and you're holding it in your hands, and it was, I was like, oh, okay, this is, like, <laughs> this is really cool. And so then I started learning about fly fishing, and that's when I really got into it in college. So. What were you taking in college? I was an economics major. Okay. So I'm very math-oriented. Um, did you play I, sports? Because you, you're really yeah, athletic. I, I did. I played... Um, in high school, I lettered in three sports, was captain of all three. And, and then when I got to college, um, I played soccer for a while. And then I ended up learning how to play squash when I was away on a junior year abroad in England. That's interesting. And I made the varsity squash team when I got Seriously? back senior year. Yeah, and it was, I love squash. That's a really cool sport, but it's not very practical when you live out here unless I built my own squash court. Yeah, know. please don't. Yeah, I'm not going to because it would never get used. What was the third sport? Uh, well, in high school, I was a ski racer. Uh, I played softball. I played soccer. I rode crew. Because yeah. for people who have never seen you, how tall are you? Um, five nine. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were a little taller than that. Uh, five nine. You just have a presence about you when you walk <laughs> in a room. Yeah. Well, thank you. So then, what happens? Because I know when we, when I mean, you and I have spent countless. Mm-hmm. hours discussing our lives on the dean yeah and i remember you telling me about this amazing road you this travel oh, world tr- trip you did yeah i did a trip around the world so after college i i spent like um i studied really hard and had worked really hard all through high school and college and i just wanted to take a year off mm-hmm. and i had interviewed at like you know morgan stanley and jp morgan all these investment firms in new york and i had gotten job offers from them and all my friends moved to New York and started making bucks right away Mm -hmm. and I was like I think I just need to take a little bit of time away from working my tail off and I started my trip in 97 in September of 97 so I saved my money and did that trip around the world and it was a fly fishing trip and I had a friend that I lived with in Seattle who worked at Sage so he got me into Sage and I got a couple fly rods from them and they owned Lampson at the time so I got some Lampson reels and I got jackets so it was it wasn't like I was sponsored by them but I got all the stuff yeah, you from them for the trip so I went on that trip around the world and I mean, where did you go started in New Zealand did six weeks there did six I think six in Australia then I went up to Indonesia Malaysia Singapore Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Nepal, India, Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, France, Zimbabwe, 
Zambia, South Africa, and Argentina. And it's like, oh, it's so rad. I just love it. I can't yeah. get enough. So I just like, that's, I just, I remember that because people are like, where have you been so far? And I would rattle it off. And then, so, yeah, so I, I fished just about everywhere. Um, I didn't fish a lot in Indonesia. I didn't fish at all in Laos um, or Vietnam. Did I go to Vietnam on that? No, I just went to Laos on that trip. Because um, there's all kinds of landmines still yeah. from the Vietnam War, so you're not going to be traipsing around near rivers. So. No. Um, India was really amazing. I w- went up there, you know, found some some rivers that had trout. Is it so amazing that you would go there as a destination to go fishing? I've been there again. No, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it can be. Not what I found as an individual traveler. Right. I was there at the wrong time of year. I mean, it's really hard to plan a trip around the world and hit every place at the right time of year. It's impossible. It's impossible. But um, it was really cool because when I was on the rivers in India, I would have entire villages following me while I was fly fishing. (laughs) And then every time I would catch a fish, they would put their hand to their mouth like, give me the fish, I will eat it. Like they, they were wanting to eat the fish. And then I would let the fish go. And they would be shocked and horrified. And then um, my aunt, who is Thai and who is Buddhist, she gave me a hundred-year-old Buddhist, like a gold uh, Buddha to wear around my neck to protect me while I was traveling. Yeah. So I had that around my neck. So then I could just show them this Buddha. And they totally understood. They were like, oh, you won't kill anything. Uh That religion explained it to them. You know, oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, because you know the Hindus, and I mean they're all Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist. I mean they all understand that, like, it's you, sacred. You don't. Yeah. No. For me, when I was traveling that much, I came to realize that religion for most of the rest of the world isn't going to church on Sunday. No. This is their every day, every moment, every waking moment, every breathing moment. They're living it, and so. For me to have that Buddha around my neck was like the perfect explanation to them of why I would let a fish go, even though I'm not Buddhist. But still, that's very interesting. What an eye-opener. Yeah. What was your favorite spot to fish of all those countries? Oh, well, different spots for different reasons. I mean, New Zealand was really great because the people there were so friendly and so welcoming Mm-hmm. that it was almost like they were naively friendly. You almost wanted to say, you can't just invite anybody <laughs> to come stay at your house. You know, but I was traveling as a woman alone, so it was really easy to find people that were very friendly and helpful. Like, yeah. I was there a week, and somebody I met was like, oh, my mate's got a car, I'll loan it to you. Seriously? Yeah, so I had the loan of a car for six weeks. You know like, what, I can't even say that they really changed. They have, no. Still super accommodating down because I haven't been there. Are you in the were you on the South Island? I was on both the North and the South. So I got. Did you find that one was more friendly than the other? Not really. I got loaned the car on the North Island, and we got invited to people's house. So when I say we, I was on the North Island for about a week in in uh, Tarangi, yeah, on the Tongariro River. Awesome. And it was really rainy. It was September, so it was really rainy. But the fishing was really good. Mm-hmm. And I met a, a guy from Ireland. He was staying at the same place I was staying. Actually, he was staying in one of the rooms at the hostel. And I was camping because I was trying to save the money. You know, like, it's a couple dollars cheaper if you pitch your tent. Well, I had water, like, running through my tent. And so this 
this guy I met, Dave, Dave Johnston, who's still a friend of mine today, um, he saw all this gear I had, and he's like, well, I'm traveling through New Zealand for six weeks, too. And so we ended up traveling together, and we became really good friends. He's come out to the Deschutes and visited my husband, John, and I. And so this guy loaned us this car, and then Dave and I just traveled all through New Zealand, um, fishing everywhere. <laughs> and it was really nice to have a companion to travel with, too. Yeah, so. I bet. What was your, and I, I really hate when people ask me these questions, but I'm going to ask you because I <laughs> genuinely want to know. Do you have one particular situation in your head that really sticks out as like uh, just a life change, not even a life changing mom- moment, but just a moment of, oh my God, this is really happening right now. Disorgan- <sighs> you know, unorganized. Um, Africa was a real trip because I was in Zimbabwe before it really got really bad, mm-hmm. but it was in 98. Have you been there? No, that's why I'm so fascinated by your trip. And I, it was very scary. Like, Africa was very scary because I'd traveled alone. Now, at this point in my trip, I'd been all through India, all through Asia, all through... I mean, Europe is not scary, but no. you get to Africa, and the, the meaning of life was... Like, life was not very precious. Yeah. I know a guy whose brother was killed just backpacking exactly. to Africa. And that's, there were backpackers that were just shot. Yep. And just so their backpacks and cameras were taken. Yeah. And so I was really scared there. It was scary. But um, I also had some great experiences in Africa and, like, amazing stuff. Like, um, like ca- canoeing down a river and we're fishing for tiger fish and then... We would pull the canoe up on the shore and we'd turn the canoe upside down in front of us so that crocs, these huge Zambezi crocs, would have a little barrier before they got to us. And then an elephant would come out of the forest behind us and we were like, get in the canoe, let's get out of here. I mean, like, there's a ton of stuff there that can kill you. Like, it's everything can kill you. Horrifying. So were you yeah. hiring guides for that? Uh, no, actually, the I was there kind of during the off-season. So when I got to Victoria Falls... Um, the, we, we being a friend that I had traveled to England to meet, I met her in Australia and then she invited me to England and we were in England. This is another great story, but she was, we're in England. Her name is Rose. And her mother says to me, I just wish Rose would find a nice boy. And I said, well, Rose is going to Africa with me. Cause I convinced her. I'm like, let's go to Africa together. And so Rose is going sure to Africa. Her mother loved that, oh, by the way. She was not happy. So we, I said, Rose is going to Africa with me. She, maybe she'll meet a nice boy in Africa. And her mother just looks at me horrified. And she goes, oh, heavens, I hope not. <laughs> and then I said, no, 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 there's, there's lots of nice British boys traveling, you know, all around the world where I've been, you know, there's lots of British boys traveling. She goes, oh, as long as he's from Kent. <laughs> which is where they were from in, in, in England, which is south of London, which is really nice. But um, we go down, Rose and I go down to Victoria Falls, and the first day we're there, we just get off the plane, and this guy, really nice guy, is at the airport, and he offers us a ride into Vic Falls. And I'm like, no, 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 because I've been traveling for over a year now and I'm like really cautious about everything especially guys offering you rides mm-hmm. as soon as you land yeah trafficking and, and so <laughs> so we get in the back of this guy's pickup truck no you did yes, we did so we Gosh. get in the back of this guy's pickup truck he's super nice 
he takes us into Vic Falls. He, he owns a travel company, and he's like, my name's Trevor, and he finds out that I'm a fisherman. He's a crazy fisherman. Okay. Finds out I'm a fisherman. He's like, this is amazing. Okay. He's like, we're going to go to this awesome safari camp on the Zambezi River in a week, but I've got to go away for a week, so you and Rose can stay at my house. I've got a maid, and he was like, he was like, and I got a maid and a gardener and this driver, and he'll take care of you guys, and you can you can stay at my house, and when I come back, we'll go to the safari camp. And we were like, okay. <laughs> and then he and Rose fall in love. No, no. And they are married. Still? Now. Yep, they got married like a year later. Was he and from Kent? He was not. He is African. He is His mother, I think, was... English and his father is African, and, and they now live in Kent. And, okay, and so it worked they, out. They have a beautiful little baby, and it's really awesome. So that's that all amazing. Out. So, so that was a pretty amazing experience. That because I convinced her to go to Africa, like her whole life changed. So that was very cool. That's amazing. So meanwhile, you're catching tons of fish. These two are falling in love. Yeah, and we're at some safari camp, and. Um, yeah, it was awesome. What what else is in the river? There's, I mean, not tiger fish. Is, tiger well, fish. bream, bream, brim. Yes, I was like brim, bream, which bream. is basically what I caught growing up, which are like crappie type, yeah, perch type. Catch them in Australia. Yeah, same thing. So, what about tigers? What are they? What kind of flies are you using? For uh, tigers? We're using. I was using tarpon flies. So, uh. just there really wasn't like a tiger fish fly because um, it wasn't really nobody. Then, yeah, was nobody was doing it. No. Um, there was one American gal that had done it, which I found out about when I got back, and I can't remember her name now, but I met her at the trade shows. But um, nobody was fly fishing for them. And so I was fly fishing for them while the other guys in the boat were throwing whatever else out there, bait and everything. Mm-hmm. And they were catching tons of big tigers, and I would catch the occasional small one. From Africa, was yeah. there was there one species in particular where... Tiger fish. Where, well, so... But, I mean, after Africa, after you left Africa, was there one species on your entire world tour that you couldn't stop ranting and raving about when you came home? Um, I have to say that the whole reason that I went to Africa was because I went into a fly shop in New Zealand and saw a tiger fish on the wall. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what is that? And where does it live? You know, because it was, like, amazing-looking fish. And so when I went to Africa, I mean, I went to Africa to try to find those fish and to try to catch those fish, and I did catch a really big one, and I had it mounted, and it's in our fly shop. And I have never... I met, That was the only fish I killed on the whole trip. And it was only, like, $50 to have that thing mounted, but it was three hundred and fifty dollars to have Air France fly it back. So you did ship States. it back. I got it shipped back to Portland. We had to go pick it up in Portland, and it and all the fins got broken while it was shipped, and it was it was a nightmare. So after your whirlwind tour, yeah, you come back to uh, Washington or to no, Oregon? I, I had an apartment in Oregon that I sublet out. Right. I was living in Portland, and. I was back from my trip. I was such a nerd. I I had all these pictures printed from my trip. Like, you know, back then we were using film. Yeah. So I had developed all these slides. I had a great slideshow. 
And then I had all these pictures printed in a little photo book booklet. And I went to the trade show. This was, I got back on December like 23rd or 22nd, had Christmas with my family, came back to Oregon, and I think it was right around the first week of January, there was a huge trade show, mm-hmm. the O'Loughlin Show at the Portland um, Expo Center. So I went to it, and I was going to look for a job. Well, I was going to look for a couple things. I wanted a new rod. I wanted a three-weight. I wanted a drift boat, or actually a raft. I was going to get a raft. And then I was looking for a job, too. Yeah. So I go to this trade show, and I find C.F. Berkheimer's booth, one of the few rod companies that was there. And Carrie Berkheimer's in the booth, and his assistant helping him in the booth is John Hazel. <laughs> right. So I go to the booth, and John's not in the booth, but Carrie's in the booth, and I said I'd really like to try a three-weight. So I grab a three-weight, and I go over to the casting pond, and John is giving a demo on the casting pond. <laughs> yeah. On spay casting or something. And he looks over at me, and I look at him, and I said, how long are you going to be? Because I want to cast this rod. Which was, oh, because he was taking up the space on the pond. He was on the pond, yeah. <laughs> and he was giving a demo, right? He had like an Wait, audience. Wait, he had an audience and you asked him how well, long yeah, he was going to be? Well, yeah, I was so obnoxious. Like, oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, how long are you going to be doing this demo, you know? Because I want to. Well, he's not very subtle either. What did <laughs> no. he say? So he, he looks at me like, so he tells me like years later, he goes, I looked at you and I knew I was going to marry you. That's what he said to me, which was really sweet, right? (laughs) And I looked at him like, who is this guy? Come on, wrap it up. Let's get, I want to cast this, you know, three-weight. And so at that show, um, after I cast the three-weight, after John was off uh, off the pond, I took the rod back to the booth, and there was John, you know, this guy that I had just, like, was John a famous guide at the time? Well, he was, but I didn't know who but he was. Did Oregon know who he was? Oh, yeah. Everybody knew who he was. And he was in all kinds of books and stuff. And, you know, he he was, he was had worked for Kaufman's for years. And um, he was he had his own guides, his biggest guide service on the Deschutes. And I didn't know anything about any of that. So <laughs> I didn't know who, I didn't know Carrie Berkheimer from Adam. I was just like, okay, so I like, Bring the rod back. I'm like, yeah, that was a pretty good rod. Yeah, that was a pretty good rod. <laughs> like, like, I know, you know. <laughs> and so then um, I said, well, I had my little booklet. And I'm like, I just came back from traveling around the world. And I'm like, Wait, no, no, no. You brought your phone I brought my little phone. So, so dorky. And these guys just thought it was the cutest. They just thought it was the cutest thing, you know, because I'm just such a dork, right? And and then I said, I want to buy a raft. And John Hazel says, no, you want to buy a drift boat. And I'm like, no, I really think I want to buy a raft because I don't know how to row a drift boat. And I think I think a raft would be safer. And he's like, no, you really want a drift boat. Let me put you in touch with the right person. So he calls his friend Gary, who was the high drift boat uh, rep at the time. And he's like, Gary, I've got this girl. She wants to buy a drift boat. <laughs> she wants to buy a drift boat. What would you sell me that drift boat for? Okay, you sell it to this girl for that price, 
And if she doesn't buy it, I'll buy it from you for that price. Like, he didn't need a drift boat, but he wanted me to get this drift boat badly. Because this was his, like, in. <laughs> so, did it work? Yeah, it worked. But I, like, I went and looked at this drift boat. And it's brand new. Like, it's been on the water twice. It comes with a trailer. I go to the, the guy's house to look at it. I'm like, wow, this is gorgeous. It's a gorgeous drift boat. I'm like, wow, okay. Like, $3,500. Boy, that's expensive. I'm thinking because I'm <laughs> I've been pinching pennies for two years yeah. traveling. Like, I, I don't have a job at this point. I don't have a job. I I went through six weeks in India for three hundred dollars. Right. Oh my god. I did. Okay. I did six weeks in New Zealand for six hundred dollars. <laughs> like, I was tight. Like, I would sleep on anybody's couch that offered me a couch. I was like eating. You know one piece of bread a day kind of thing you know like the more money I could save the longer I could travel so that was just like obscenely expensive I thought for for a drift boat which was actually insanely cheap so he goes listen if you buy this drift boat if you don't like it in one year I'll buy it back from you for this exact price $3,500 I'm like ooh well that's like I can't lose right (laughs) And he gives me backing up lessons. I'm pretty good at backing up. And then he's like, and I'll take you out on the Clackamas for a couple, you know. So we go out on the river oh, he's and we're rowing. He's smooth. He's, he's Gary Rawson, great guy, still a friend. Oh, this is Gary, not John. This is not John. Oh, I thought this John not, was this working is John's at hard. Buddy. No, okay, got it. John's buddy is working at hard for John. John, take team. <laughs> so okay, he it. tells John that I bought the drift boat. He's like, she bought the drift boat. <laughs> So then I get an email. Email is pretty in its infancy. Yeah. And I get an email from John, which I'm kind of amazed that he even knows how to do email. <laughs> John's kind of a... Neanderthal? Uh, Grizzly Adams looking guy. So John emails me says, I heard you got your boat. If you'd like to come out to the Deschutes, we can row it and I can show you some tips on rowing. Don't worry, I have a guest house. I'm thinking, I'm not worried because I've been sleeping on anybody's couch that offered, <laughs> offered me a couch for the last two years. Right? Yeah. So I come out and I rode the drift boat with John and he hires me to be a guide for him. Because I don't even know at this point that he has a guide service. Wow. Was that a shock when he offered you that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was like, really? I don't think I'm ready. I don't think I, I don't think. I don't think I'm ready to guide. He's like, you will be ready to guide after I train you and show you, you know, like what to do on this river for trout and for steelhead. And at the time, he only had Deck Hogan working for him as a steelhead guide. Deck would come in in August and then guide until the end of October. And so I came on and John and I would guide trout and then Deck would come and then the three of us would guide steelheads. So okay, it's those, all coming together. Go yeah, ahead. and so those guys, the first year when I became a steelhead guide, I was like, I'm not going to be a steelhead guide. Are you guys kidding me? I'm not going to be a steelhead guide. I've caught like five steelhead. I'm not going to be a steelhead guide. They're like, you know the river, you know the runs. We're training you. You know how to. We've taught you how to spay cast. You can teach people basic spay casting stuff. You're going to guide steelhead. Because this was a long time ago. This was in 99. Yeah, so it was still before the big boom. Oh, there wasn't any... Nobody was spay casting except for, like... Brian Sylvia was guiding on the river, and he was spay casting. 
and John and Deck and I, and that's about it. Yeah, on the hold the shoots. So there was a lot of room to teach. And people, people. would stop on the slam on their brakes to see people spay casting. They yeah. were just freaking out. And all we were using ten one fifties, ten weight fifteen footers, and that was right when the ninety one forty came into play. And we were like, "Wow, this is amazingly <laughs> <Yeah>. small." <laughs> and then as the years went on, you know, like we helped Sage develop the sixty one twenty six, which was the first six weight, which was like awesome for the shoots because mm-hmm. that you know. So anyway, we so. I started steelhead guiding, and I was like, really, guys, I'm not, I don't, you know, I can't, I'm not really, I shouldn't really be, but they're like, you know the runs, you know, you will learn as you guide. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I learned as I guided, and I knew by the end of the season, like, where the steelhead were going to come, you know, and clients would always call me like the steelhead angel because I would just appear in the bushes behind them like right as they hooked up because you know you get to know where the buckets are in the uh-huh. run yeah. you get to know where the most likely place this person's going to hook steelhead so if you have two clients you're running back and forth between them and you show up you go oh that guy's getting close to the rock mm-hmm. and then you run up there and you poke your head out of the bushes and you we could at this time on the Deschutes it was right after a big flood, so there wasn't any, uh, there weren't any trees along the streamside riparian, so we could get into high vantage points, and I could watch the client's fly swing from the very minute it touched down until it swung in, because we're fishing floating line, floating leaders, and unweighted flies. Right, so you're learning a lot as well. So I was so learning everything by watching every fly swing, and I could see every steelhead that came up and followed a fly or swiped at a fly, or just came up and went down. So I got to see every steelhead grab the fly. I mean, almost, you know, if I was above the person, I was watching their fly. And that's why we tied white wing flies with flash on the top, because we could see them very well. So could the steelhead. And so we would watch every fly swing, and I learned so much doing that. But then every night when I would come back in from guiding, John and Deck and I would each be on a different float every day. And we'd come in and we'd compare notes. And we learned things like everybody hooked up at 2 o'clock or everybody hooked up at 10.30 that day. And, and it was like, on, especially on days when the barometric pressure was dropping and the wind was blowing downstream and it was just not a fishy day. You know what I mean? When, yeah. When yeah. it's just cold fronts moving Those in. Those days, yeah. And during those days, there would always be a moment where it would just be like whoosh, calm for a second, and everybody would hook up within 40 miles of river. Everybody would hook up at the same time. So every night we'd get off the river, John, Deck, and I, and sometimes Brian Sylvie, because he would stop in and visit with us. We would talk about our day on the water. We would talk about everything that happened. We would talk about what flies we fished. We'd talk about where the fish were holding. And I learned just a ton from those evening sessions so so when did the fly shop come into play your guys are so uh, we shop. didn't open the fly shop until let's see i started guiding in 99 and were we, you and i just i have to ask i mean how long did it take for you and john to be oh well know? we got we we're we are pretty much romantically together within the first like six four or five months got it okay. two months <laughs> I mean, and you're married. Pretty you, quick. We might add. And now we're married. Now, so. yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we we 
um, opened our fly shop in 2003, the same year that John and I got married. So that's um, an interesting equation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's really fun running a business with your spouse. Especially your new spouse. Yeah. So we, yeah, one day John came home and he's like, the retail space across just opened, so I leased it, and we're going to have a fly shop. I'm whoa, like, whoa, really? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so he, it kind of grew out of a little bit of frustration that we had. There was There is a fly shop, in another fly shop in Moppin. And Moppin is, how many people It's very tiny, like 400 people. Okay. Yeah, so Moppin's very tiny, but it's a destination town. And we were doing a lot of guiding, and we would take people down to the other fly shop to get flies and leaders and tippets and stuff but the hours were a little inconsistent and it was a little frustrating and not only that but like you're trying to recommend gear to people who are out on trips with you and yet they can't find the gear anywhere so we ended up opening that fly shop and it's a really good thing that we did because you can't guide forever I mean like it when you're guiding, you're making a set amount of money every day. Mm-hmm. And when you have a business like a fly shop, you can grow that. Yeah, can, there's not a cap on it. There's not a cap on it. Not, a, not in the way there is with guiding anyway. Yeah, with guiding, you're making this much money every day that you work. You're never making more. Mm-hmm. You're sometimes making less, depending, depending <laughs> yeah. on the gratuity. So the fly shop was great for us because it allowed us to grow the number of guides we have working for us, which we've kept. We keep at four. Four guides work for us. So, and we, what's the season? Well, the season it's open year round on the Deschutes. Our fly shops open year round. Um, we have anglers coming year round, but the trout season really kicks off in March. We have a good March brown hatch. We're running steelhead really July through December. Okay. And then we have a guide who goes to the coast and guides for us on the coast all all winter long. So. Which guy is that? Alex. Alex okay. says that. Yeah. Now, Alex was saying that um, the season, it's, I mean, it's nonstop. He said when the season starts on the Deschutes for Steelhead, it's, there's basically no time. There's no time to sleep. For anything. Yeah. Except for during the day. And I'm, and you know that you're one of my favorite groups because you guys like to nap during the afternoon. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not going to complain about napping no, during well, the afternoon. Well, we get that way because the Steelhead getting, the reason, like, when I started working for John... And Deck was working for him. Neither one of them thought that a woman could do what they're doing. Because we woke up every morning at 3 in the morning. We got coffee and soup and stuff ready for the day. Picked our clients up at 4 to 4, 4.30 in the morning. Drive down the river in the dark. Get to the river in the dark. Back your boat up in pitch blackness. Launch your boat and row down the river for two miles through rapids in pitch blackness with no light because you have to get ahead of everybody. And (laughs) then you sit in the dark drinking coffee until it's light enough to fish, which is sometimes you're sitting in the dark for 45 minutes. And every time you hear a boat coming, you turn on your lights and go, "Ah," you know, "Ah, (laughs) we're here kind of thing. Keep rowing. Yeah. And so then we would fish from like five in the morning until noon. So that's seven hours of fishing. And then you set up lounge chairs in the shade and you feed somebody a sandwich, they're out. Yeah. I mean, and we're exhausted because we get no sleep at night. So we would sleep for a couple hours in the shade and then we'd get up and start fishing again and we'd fish until 
eight or nine at night. Yeah. And then we drive an hour back to town. It's 10 o'clock. Then your clients want to have a few cocktails with you. Then you get home. Then you clean your boat out. Then you get your stuff ready. Now it's midnight, and you're waking up at 3. Then that's exactly what Alex said. And he said that when it's on, it is on. It is on. And we would we would do this. Normally, you'd guide for about 17 or 18 days in a row without a day off. And then you get one day off, and then you go for another 17 or 18 day in a row stretch. So your hands, you know how your hands get when you're guiding. Mm-hmm. They're raw. They're like sandpaper. And that's and I'm also... Not, I'm not rowing a boat all day. I mean, you guys are rowing a boat row, all yeah, day. Yeah, we're rowing a boat 10 to 20 miles a day. Oh, my God. And Your back, I mean, didn't your back just... Uh, my back got really sore because from throwing an anchor. We have yeah. a 35-pound anchor that we throw into the bushes. And I was just doing what the boys did. And so now I've learned to work a lot smarter. <laughs> not just, you know, but... Yeah, it's exhausting. It is. It's the hardest core. I think the Deschutes is probably, for a steelhead guide, the hardest core steelhead guiding you can do. And I was thrown right into the thick of it because we were booked every single day. It wasn't like I was booked two days a week and had other days off. We were into it just boom, 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 boom. And so it was... uh, it was hardcore, and you're hallucinating. I mean, it, sleep deprivation is a real deal. Yeah. And so you're just trying to hold it together. And when we got to the end of the season, it was like, ah, oh, you know, you could just breathe a, a deep sigh of relief. So that brings me to my next question. I really believe that if you guys believed that during those two hours of the hottest part of the day, that if the fishing was going to be great, that you guys... We, we would be fishing. fishing. Oh, oh yeah, we would. So let's talk about why you take the the time off because I know that okay. you firmly on the believe- Dean we don't. But here's the yeah, difference. Here. The big difference is that the Deschutes flows straight north, and so the way the sun rises and the way the sun travels around and the way the sun sets, the sun is directly in the steelhead's eyes and bright. I mean, desert burning sun bright throughout the middle of the day. And we've taken mask and snorkel, jumped in the water, and tried to look like a steelhead, look upstream, and you just can't see anything. You can't see anything. Now, you could probably put on a sink tip and maybe dredge up a steelhead, but John's been guiding out here since 78, and he's had plenty of guys who are like, well, I'm not stopping fishing. Mm -hmm. And I have too. I've had plenty of guys who are like, I'm from Connecticut, and I'm going to fish every minute that I'm out here. I'm like, knock yourself out. I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. Okay, so they'll go through a piece of water three times, or two pieces of water twice, while we're napping, and they don't hook anything. And as soon as the sun dips below the canyon wall, I'm like, all right, let's start. They're like, well, I just fished this. I'm like, put your fly out there. Let's start fishing. Mm-hmm. Fish on. You know, just because... That sun not being right in their eyes, it makes a huge difference. Coming up, Amy talks about Deschutes steelhead techniques, etiquette, history, and more. The Hazels are also strong hatch reel advocates. The tight tolerance between frame and spool means no more tangling with skinny running line that gets trapped and reversed. I've lost some big fish that way, and hatch simply removes the constant checking and worrying. After all, there are more important things to be paying attention to when on the water. 
Visit Hatch at www.hatchoutdoors.com and be prepared to make one of the best fishing investments you've made so far. We're in your place right now. We're in your like home fly shop, which is absolutely astonishing. This place, <laughs> I cannot stop staring around me. Um, just for the listener, because they can't be here right now, unfortunately. Um, Amy Hazel has more fly tying materials, I think, than anyone I know. And <laughs> she has a her tying desk. I'm sitting in the middle of her tying desk on one side of the room and John's tying desk on the other. And I'm also holding a sorted by category <laughs> little booklet she's made that shows that if she wants to get a... Hold on. where Oh, that's right. If she wants to go and get... A, um, a streamer cape. She has to go to John's far left top drawer in section A, which I'm looking at here. It is a red code with a capitalized A to go and get. Th- it's amazing. <laughs> you are just so. Well, you have to organize this stuff. You're here. so inspiring. But your library is what really caught my attention, as you know, when we walked in here. And uh, I have seen a lot of, of books, and I've seen reference to um, some little classic books with Atlantic salmon, and that's age old. People talk about Atlantic salmon also not biting when the sun is directly in their eyes. So, does do shoots have a lot of similarities to the Atlantic salmon fisheries? Because I've noticed your flies look very classic too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, John grew up. John's mentor was Bill McMillan, and he was very close with Bill. And they both lived on the Washougal, and and he really. You know, that whole dryline steelhead, that book, I mean, that was the first book that he made me read, and not made me read, but... You know, John fished with a floating line for steelhead even in the winter, because that's what Bill did. And John said, you know, I fished for 200 days before I got my first winter steelhead, because, you know, I mean, he's fishing with a floating line all the time. Yeah. And when John started getting out here, and he, he can tell you this when you talk to him, but, like... He had no faith in anything but a skater because that's all he ever fished on the Deschutes was skaters. So when people would bring out wet flies, he'd be like, oh, no, God, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> and, so, and, and we've always used just floating line and unsunk flies, non-weighted, on the Deschutes, and we've done very, very well with that. I mean, the, I mean, we just, that's the way we've always done it, and that's the way we do it. And maybe if you dredge... In the middle of the day, you might get a few more fish, but in terms of what you're asking about Atlantic salmon versus steelhead, I have fished Atlantic salmon, and I think one of the difference, the difference, one of the big differences between the two is that Atlantic salmon tend to hold more out in the middle of the river, a little bit more like Dean River steelhead. You know, like the mm. some of the water that we fish on the Dean, yeah. you're like, what? No way! This water is way fast. Yeah. Like this right. is never. Like, I'm sometimes, when I'm up there confused, I'm like, no, really? We're like, like are we us. really going to put this fly? Because those fish are really grabby, and they're they're moving in really fast water, mm-hmm. and you just have to get your fly out there and keep your fly out there, and they're going to grab it. John had guided, like, Allie Gowan, who's an old Scottish uh, Atlantic salmon angler, and a lot of the Atlantic salmon anglers that, that I've spoken with, they the most... Frequent grab is from the touchdown to about one-third of the way into the swing. And with steelhead, the most frequent grab is from about one-third of the way into the swing to the bank. Because they often follow it in. And like I said, I've watched hundreds and hundreds of steelhead follow flies in. Do you think it's a speed thing? I know in my experiences, Atlantic salmon always tend to like a 
or often tend like a faster swing and maybe the first third the fly swinging faster could maybe be that. it could be that or that they just hold farther out into uh, the river very interesting and point. and so like um so like john i remember <laughs> when he guided this guy ellie and he came in and he was so frustrated because he was the guy was scottish and he wouldn't listen but like neither does john so but the guy just would bring his fly and cast again after a third of the way through. No, oh god, no! And so John was just like pulling his hair out, just like you gotta let it swing all the way in. And you know we're like because I watched so many fish follow the fly all the way to the bank and then grab it. I mean, every time I had a fisherman, I was watching the fly swing. I'm like, leave it, leave it, let it swing, let it swing, let it swing, because they think the swing is over. But the fly still has a ways to go, even when your line is look yeah. seemingly dangling, dangling below you. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a big difference in the way they grab the fly. I think maybe Atlantic salmon might hold further out in the middle of the river, and steelhead kind of tend to hold tighter to the bank, especially first thing in the morning. Like, what about on the Deschutes? Do they hold pretty close to the shore here it depends and first thing in the morning yeah you might find more steelhead but then as people have waded down runs and fished runs yeah. then they're moved they move out a little bit okay so they're pretty standard they're just yeah. like steelhead around the world they're like steelhead around the world now what about other guiding operations have they tried to bring in the big west coast style intruders and big sink dips and they ha- i think some of them have but i don't think any of them are doing better than the guys who are fishing floating line yeah That's, one of the reasons why the Deschutes is so appealing to me is because you guys do it so classic yeah it's it's very classic the way we do it but it's like what I tell people that come into the to the shop that are from other places and they might want to fish a, a skagit line and a sink tip and a because that's what they have confidence in. You know how fishermen are. It's whatever you just caught your last steelhead on is what you think you're going to catch your next one on. And, you know, whether it's nymphing for them or fishing uh, sink tip lines with heavy flies or whatever, I'm like, okay, guys, when they come into the fly shop, I'm like, okay, look, look I'm not going to tell you how to fish. You can fish however you want for steelhead. But I will tell you that you you have come to this river just like you have traveled from across the country to go to Park City, Utah to ski powder. Okay? You go all the way to Park City, Utah to ski the finest, most powdery powder skiing in the world. And what you're doing is you're coming to that mountain to ski that powder, but you're choosing to ski groomed trails because you're used to skiing groomed trails in New Jersey, in Minnesota, or wherever you grew up, you skied groomed trails. And that's what I'm referring to, the nymph fishing or the sink tip fishing. And that's what you're comfortable with. And you can certainly go all the way to Park City, Utah and ski groomed trails. But you're missing out on what Park City, Utah is all about is powder skiing. And it's not like it's not like at the end of the day you're going to get to the bar and say, hey, you know what, I skied... 4,600 vertical feet or 46,000 vertical feet on groomed trails today and the guy who hiked to the top of the bowl and skied four runs of powder is going to go, who cares? Yeah. (laughs) I skied four runs of the most beautiful virgin powder ever that I've ever skied in my life. I floated down the mountain and you skied, however, 26 runs from the chair down the groomed trail up the chair down the groomed trail 
That's cool. If that's what you wanted, come to Park City, Utah to do ski groom trails. That's cool. Yeah, have fun. You're but on your own. for me, like the Deschutes is about a floating line and a floating leader, and getting to see a boil and getting a really hard grab when a steelhead grabs your fly. It's not like, oh, I had twelve takedowns today with my nymph indicator rig. Right. It's like when a steelhead grabs a, a floating line and a and a skating fly or or a just one inch below the surface fly you know it mm-hmm. i mean it's like that was a steelhead <laughs> it wasn't like like trout don't grab those i mean very rarely do they ever grab them so so that's that's why we've always done it that way and honestly when you have brand new people fishing for steelhead it's so much easier to have them fish a floating line correctly than to have them control and really fish a sink tip and a sunk fly mm-hmm. effectively and well because with a floating line you can see everything it's all right there yeah and and especially when you put a skater on for them you put a skater on at at least once in every day with every angler i try to have them fish a run with a skater so that they they can see the skater and they can see how far behind it actually is from their line so they can see how it behaves they can see what happens when they make a mend, how much it jerks the fly. And, I mean, we stand behind, I stand behind guys all the time. I'm like, make this cast and don't mend. And they make the cast and they're just lifting the rod. I'm like, don't mend, don't mend, don't mend. You know, because the mend jerks the fly so much that I've had steelhead coming up. As I say, we watch them. We climb trees to watch them too. Watch them from the bank. Steelhead is swimming up to the fly, about to open its mouth and take it, and the guy mends. The fly jerks four inches forward and drops four inches back, and the steelhead just drops away. And so that, you know, (laughs) another reason we like that floating line thing is that you can get, so I carry a big loop. Now, I don't, I stopped doing it on the Dean because I was missing so many fish. Yeah, let's talk about this. Now, people who, some people don't know what what you mean by a big loop. Okay. And, And let's. Because you and I have had this, this, this in fact, and it's different on the Dean than on the Deschutes. Our discussion, yeah, because yeah. I always hold an eight-inch soft loop, yeah. and I used to give you so much shit about that big, a huge loop, loop. slapping your hands. So yeah. Explain to me why you have such a big loop. Okay, on the Deschutes, the fish will sometimes swim forward like eight feet to grab that fly, and they grab it and they turn and they they just drop back to where they were with the fly in their mouth. So. When you're, nonchalantly. When, nonchalantly. So when you're holding a, a loop in your on the on the Deschutes, actually, I hold a loop that's about six feet long and just barely hold it in my fingers. So when I feel that fish come up and grab that fly, I let the loop go out, go out, go out, and the fish never feels resistance until it's headed back downstream with the fly in the corner of its mouth. And when it tightens up, I don't set the hook, never lift the rod, just when it tightens up and I feel the reel start to go, then I just lift the rod up and the fish is hooked perfectly in the corner of the mouth every time. So you're letting the current also help to set that And up. the current helps that too. But what happens on the Deschutes, which is really the game, which is the fun game, which is you cast a fly out there and you get a grab, but they let go. Now they haven't felt anything because you have such a big loop that the loop's gone halfway out 
and then he lets go. And you're like, all right, player, let's play this game. Play on. So you bring your loop back to where it was. You cast the fly in the same exact spot, and he'll come up and eat it again, but then pull the loop halfway out and let go. So then you're like, all right, no problem. Bring the fly in, change the fly, put it back out there. He'll grab it again, take the loop halfway out, nothing. You're like, oh. bring it back in, put a different fly on, and you play this game. I've had him do it well, like... Why is he letting it go, do you I think? don't know, but you do it like eight or nine times, and they're never stung, so they never get freaked, and they're still in the same spot. And then you finally... Usually it happens where you change back to the original fly that you originally got the grab on, and then they eat it. But like, we made uh, that movie Drift when we made that movie. Yeah. Excellent. They were Excellent, by the way. film. Thank you. We were they were filming with film, so it wasn't digital. It was it was film. So we couldn't just roll because you couldn't burn up that no. much film. So during that movie, there's a point where I hook a fish, um, and I have my hand in my pocket, and and what happened was I told the guy, I told the guy, I said I just had a grab, and he took my whole loop. And he's a player, so if you're going to film, film now. That's the time. So I brought the loop back in, made the same cast. This time I didn't mend, so I sped up the fly a little bit, and the fish grabbed it, and it was all caught on film. Oh. Which So there are little tricks that we do, like, you know, you don't mend when you want to speed the fly up past, or you'll mend downstream to get the fly going a little faster past the same fish. But that big loop on the shoots allows us to play that comeback game and the reason it didn't work on the dean because on the dean they're moving they're (laughs) they're in super fast water and they're moving so they're not moving up and taking and turning and going back to a lie yeah and so while i have hooked fish on the dean with a bigger loop at that year when there were so many fish that first year when you were up there i was like i was like get you know i would miss them i kept missing them and then i just started carrying them Either a shorter loop or no yeah. loop at all. And I was like, all right. I remember this. It was, yeah. uh, but it was super frustrating because it to, was. Go it from was like, to go from like what I was so used to. But then you were smacking them after that. Yeah, well, once I shortened up the loop. But, you know, the Dean Fish don't don't stop and go back to where they were holding. They're, they're on the move. Yeah, they are. At least in the lower river for sure. So, so. let's talk a little bit about the second mouth of the, on the disputes. <laughs> <laughs> Second mouth of the Deschutes. That was the greatest internet slam on me that I've ever had. And I know who did it, too, and he knows who he is. But he called me the second mouth of the Deschutes because, I mean, I'm the only woman guide on the Deschutes. I, I, maybe not anymore. Maybe I think there might be somebody now. But anyway, for years, I was the only woman guide on the Deschutes. So that really irks guys some guys to some extent um that there's a woman in their world but whatever you know get over it and and, i mean that, that yeah, yeah i know you find this hard to believe <laughs> so so somebody slammed me on the internet saying i was the second mouth of the Deschutes. yeah i do have kind of a screeching owl kind of a voice and yeah i do get excited when i rode down in the dark for two miles to get to a spot um, spread my clients out, the light's just coming up, and some dude who got up an hour and a half later decides to pull his boat in 20 yards below us and start fishing. I get a little... Ex- I, I used to get a little bit excited. But do you know what's so hilarious about this whole thing? When you told me that you were the second mouth of the Deschutes, 
I genuinely thought that they meant John was the first one. No, no, no. And you were the second no, one. I no, didn't even think about the mouth. The mouth of the dishes. Because yeah. John is forced to be reckoned with. Oh, my gosh. Two of you are yeah. powerhouses. Well, he, yeah, he, he and I have both been admittedly called to the table by the Bureau of Land Management who manages the river because people had their feelings hurt when they low-hold us and we brought it to their attention. I mean, when you've been posted at a run for four hours taking a nap and you are going to spread your guys out in that one piece of water and that's the one piece of water you want to fish in the afternoon when you've been sitting on it all day and that's kind of your plan. And some guy who um, fishes the river somewhat, maybe a couple times a year, maybe 20 times a year, I don't know. But that's his favorite piece of water. And he's got plan A. And he comes down and you're in his plan A. He's going to say, screw it. I'm going to take my plan A anyway. I'm going to just get in here 10 feet below this person and start fishing. And I said something. I mean, I said something to the people, you know, and so did John. You know, you you say to the person, hey, hey, you know, you're welcome to step in behind us and fish the run through. We're just going to fish through once, but we've been waiting for four hours for the light to get good. The light just got good, and you just pulled up. What is the etiquette on the Deschutes River? Well, the Deschutes is a big river, and that's that's always the that's always what the guy who low holds you says. Hey, it's a big river. You know, you're like, yes, it is. <laughs> yes. So you can find another place to fish. But the Deschutes, you know, when I started getting out here, there were there were fewer people. Obviously, I mean, the the, the sports more popular, and people are are everywhere. But the Deschutes is so big and there's so many runs to fish that my rule of thumb when rowing down the river is like I don't go within 500 yards of another person unless it's a distinctly separate piece of water that begins like if someone's in a piece of water and I know I know the river very well I know they cannot wade past this point because it just drops off and you'll drown or you'll be swimming Mm -hmm. if I know that that's distinctly where that run ends and maybe 50 yards below it, another one begins where you can start wading again. That's a new piece of water. But I'm not going to row in on somebody who's fishing a piece of water. I mean, on the Deschutes, there are times when you've got one guy 100 yards upstream and the next guy 100 yards below him, and I'm walking back and forth between them, and we're going to just fish that stretch. We're just going to work our way down it, spay casting, um, for two hours or three hours or whatever it is that takes us to fish 400 yards of water. And that's the beauty of having such a big river. What about the waiting? I mean, I've heard... Waiting is horrendous. I've heard it's horrendous. It's horrendous. And so I have wades where I can take people who have difficulty waiting. Um, Can you fish out of the boat? No, you cannot fish out of a boat on the chutes. And it's been that way forever. It's interesting. When we were the only ones on the river, like, I would see Brian Sylvia at the boat launch and I'd say, Brian, I got a guy today that has two hip replacements and I need I need this, this and this. If you could leave those for me, that would be awesome. And he'd say the same thing to me, you know, because everybody's clientele ages. Everybody's clientele gets older. And so when you're faced with the challenge of somebody who has a real a disability to some extent, or they're getting just older and they're losing their balance. Um, it's really nice to have 
those places in your back pocket where you're like, okay, I'm going to get to this place. Sometimes we call those places old man's sand. Okay. (laughs) Because there's lots of old man's sand, but there's very few old man's sand spots where they're also really good fishing spots. Big time, yeah. So we have names for them. Like one of them is called Powder Puff. That's one of the names of one of the runs. That It's like really sandy where you wade, and it's really not a fast current. But where your fly is, is over really good rock, bouldery structures. So. Fishy stuff. Old man sand. But Old man sand. Yeah, you like that. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard. And that's it's such a treat to go to other rivers where it's easier to wade because it just shoots as a gnarly river to wade. What do you wear on your boots then? Are you wearing- I wear felt. I just wear felt. But most people wear felt and studs. But I've always been like a felt person just because I like to slide my foot until it stops and then. I've, I've always been used to wearing felt, so that's what I do. Stuck with it. So now you've stopped guiding, or are you still guiding? I'm part-time? still guiding a little bit, but You're mostly I'm in the shop. i got to manage the, the guide team. I'd rather see my guides get, you know, out there. And yeah. I did, I mean, I did it hardcore for 13 or 14 years. It's, t- it's and, I get it. And I, I don't have to prove myself that I can guide, um, but I still have clients that I love to go out with for the day but for me it's like I'm running the fly shop I'm running the guide service and every day that I'm out of there it's like I come back and there's twice as many emails and you know over dinner tonight John is so funny 17 hour days in the fly shop you know (laughs) you guys are smoking busy yeah it's so it's a busy busy fly shop and there's always something to do as you know you always have social media I've always got videos to edit I've always got you know I could always sit up here in this fly tying room and tie another fly for another video and then edit it you know I mean there's always stuff to do what's the long-term plan do you want to always have the shop um with the right management yes yeah Um, we we really are ready to travel a little bit yeah and uh we've we've slaved in there for about 12 years and we're trying to find good management now. We've we've just hired someone new who's really good, and it would be nice for John and I to be able to just take a breather and go out and fish and enjoy ourselves. Do you ever get frustrated when people call you and everybody wants all the information and all the updates, and then they turn around and they go and they buy something from Cabela's online? I mean, is that is um, that a problem in the fly world today? In your yeah, world? that's definitely a. That definitely happens all the time. What do you have to say about that for people who don't get that? And one thing I'd say about that is people don't realize that the stuff at Cabela's costs the same that it does in a small fly shop because we all have manufacturers set retail prices. And I wish that people really understood that those big box shops aren't really doing fly fishing a big favor. So I have all the time, I have... Uh, not all the time, but I've had actually people who work at those retail, I would call these internet stores, that I call them warehouse stores. They're located somewhere in wherever they're located, but they're not a fly shop. And you want to know when you're shopping online if it's a fly shop or not? See if they sell flies on their website. Because if they don't sell flies on their website, they're not actually selling flies in their store. Not fly selections, which they buy prepackaged from fly manufacturers, but I'm talking about individual flies. 
Because what happens with these big box stores, these retail warehouses, all they bring in are rods, reels, waders, lines, and that's it. Basically that. They don't have anybody that works there that knows anything about fly fishing. I've had the people that work at those stores call me up and act like a customer and ask 10 million questions about rods and actions and lines. And I think I'm selling to somebody who's going to buy something. And then they go, well, actually, I work at such and such. They tell me. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you just picked my brain for two hours so that you can what? Try to act like you know this stuff? So it's really irritating. Do you even try to contain your disgust? Yeah, you know what? It's just second the way it is. Just the way it is. No, it's just the way it is. So I just, I just, you know, I think customers that get really good service from a fly shop recognize that and appreciate it. And I think people who are always shopping for a bargain and are going to go to the cheapest place they can get stuff. That they're always going to do that. They're it's too bad because they're missing that. out. Because you guys have free shipping too, don't you? We do have free shipping. Yeah, there's no reason. There's no reason not to support your local fly shop or to, to yeah. support fly shops in general. Well, I'm and you know the funny thing is some people can buy flies online for a dollar a piece, but I'll tell you what, those flies are cheap and they're going to fall apart. And if you saved seventy five cents on a fly. But then you hooked a fish on it and the hook broke because it's not a chemically sharpened hook. Or it just fell apart and, you you know, it was good for one fish. Mm-hmm. I don't and know. A trip that cost Is you 4500 bucks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's I get it. People want to save money. And I live in the middle of nowhere and I'm an Amazon customer and I buy a lot of stuff online. But, you know, when it comes to stuff that's important to me, I've learned that you don't want to buy it three times trying to get the right thing. Mm-hmm. If you go to the right place, like I like horses, so if I go and buy a saddle, I'm going to do my research and try to buy a saddle from somebody that I can talk to about it, that I can make sure it's the right fit, that I can, you know, that will back it up. And it might be more expensive than some saddle I pick up online, but uh, it's also going to be a saddle that I really enjoy using and it's comfortable and will last me for 40 years as opposed to I hate the saddle after riding yeah. it twice and get rid of it. So. It's a compelling argument. Yeah. Um, what are you guys doing to give back to the Deschutes? What's your environmental focus these days? Excellent question. Our focus right now is a nonprofit that we started that we helped found with um, a couple other people. It's called Deschutes Server Alliance. And Deschutes Server Alliance is focused on the lower 100 miles of the Deschutes River. John and I are on the board of directors, and we helped raise the majority of the money for the first year just by contacting our clients. What we're concerned about on the on the lower Deschutes is that about five years ago, a large company which manages the dam, there's a re-regulating dam, and then there's a dam, it's a hydroelectric dam that the water is released into the Deschutes, they began changing their water release regimen. And when they started changing their water release regimen, they did so in the name of fish passage, so in passing anadromous fish above the dam. 
they were trying to create flows, which would fool the fish into thinking that, you know, and it would teach the fish to go upstream. And in order to create those flows, they created a large tower in the middle of the reservoir, which has an intake at the top and an intake at the bottom. And they started sucking the water off the top. And that water was mostly coming from the Crooked River, and it is full of algae. And so what we've seen is over the past six years, we've seen an increased nutrient load in the Deschutes. And by nutrient load, I mean algae, bad green algae. Is that why the water's so warm? Well, and then also that that water is being released a lot warmer than it ever was. So we have two issues. We've got a warm water issue. We've also got a water quality issue. And so Deschutes River Alliance was, was started to address those things before they became out of control. And we've been trying to work with the managing agencies of the dam for the last year and a half. We've been trying to work with them, and they don't seem to want to really work with us. And so we are taking a little bit of a new stance. I can't say tons about it right now, but um, we are going to do whatever we can to reverse these damaging effects. And the damaging effects that have happened on the Deschutes are that a lot of rocks have been covered with this really slippery, slimy green algae. And it's not uh, an algae that is a nutrient for the insects and, in fact, is killing insect habitat. And we've seen entire insect hatches disappear. We've seen insect hatch timing completely change. So our salmon fly hatches two weeks earlier and not as robust um, and and we've been gathering data. We you know we've all the money that we've raised has gone towards scientific um, data gathering for the Deschutes in terms of thermal imaging and aquatic insect surveys and algae sampling and things like that. Um, so it's what we don't want is to follow what the management of the dam says. We need twenty years to figure out how this mm. is going to work. And in 20 years, they kept ruin. We don't have 20 years to watch the Deschutes go downhill. We've seen what five years has done, and we're freaking out. And so we're doing something there. Um, not much we can, I can really say right out loud right now. That's but okay. And knowing yeah. both your personalities, I know that you're, you guys both take the bull by the horn and yeah, get it done. We're going to get it done as, as much as we can. And we've been fortunate to have lots of our customers um, give money to help the cause and even back before we had our um was it 401c3 the the non-profit the the, yeah all the paperwork done because the federal government was so slow because mm-hmm. they had that shutdown they were all backed up so we weren't able to even get that that certification so that people would have that full tax write-off but still people gave like really generously, like $5,000 donations, $1,000 donations, even, you know. Without a write-off receipt. Without that, a write-off receipt. And that people, says a lot. It, it said a lot to what people really love. I mean, people love this river. and it Not on our watch is it going to go down, I'll tell you that. Well, if I were a fishery, you're two people I'd want on my side. So. Yeah, well. Um, like at some point in future, I want to hear more about it when you can disclose yeah. it. Yeah, I'll be able to later. Is there anything yeah. that... 
I'm missing. I'm trying, I'm racking my brain thinking about other stuff I can think of about you. Probably all kinds of dirt about the second mouth of the Deschutes. I honestly thought that John was the first mouth of the Deschutes. I kind of thought that you could be called the third mouth of the Dean. Yeah. Stevie would be the third mouth. <laughs> Scott Baker would be the third mouth. I would be the, the fourth fifth mouth. mouth. There's a lot of mouths. Stevie, there is too many mouths. <laughs> I'm not even close. Oh. I'm like the passive one. There's a lot of personality. Oh, is there anything that you would like to add or that you would like um, to ask me? I'm best friends with Caitlyn Jenner. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Join me in the next episode as I visit Frank Moore at his off-the-grid home on the North Umpqua River. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.